This pre-recorded show furnished by Matthew Mattern. This is Matt Matter on the Unite and Heal America show on KBC 790. My guest today is Assemblymember David Chu from San Francisco. Love to have him on the show. We've got um, got a lot to talk about in the hour. We're gonna we're gonna start uh, talking about the homelessness issue. And uh, Assemblymember Chu has uh, is the chairperson for the Housing and Community Development committee in the state assembly. Um, so he has a lot to say about that. And without further ado, uh, assembly member Chu. Matt, thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's great to have you here. And uh, essentially, we've got a, a homelessness crisis, a housing crisis, and have had one for decades here in California. And we've, we've tried a number of different measures, and we still have the crisis. Uh, what are some of the things that you think that we should be doing to alleviate that crisis? Well, um, the homeless crisis and the housing crisis are obviously very inextricably linked, but they are, they do have different issues. So maybe we'll just start with the conversation around homelessness. Um, Most cities in California over decades have been grappling with homelessness, but I think it's fair to say that the crisis that we are seeing on our California streets today is like nothing that we've seen in, in recent years. Uh, certainly in my city in San Francisco and Los Angeles on Skid Row, you go from San Diego up to the Oregon border from uh, the uh, the coast all the way inland. Um, this is the moral crisis of the day. Um, and there are many, many causes for it. Everything from the fact that we simply haven't built enough housing for everyone. Uh, we literally do not have a roof for everyone to the challenges around uh, uh, mental health uh, on uh, our streets, to drug addictions, uh, to uh, the fact that uh, we've had criminal justice reform, uh, where we have a lot of folks who are leaving our prison system, uh, but without a real path to move forward, uh, often end up back on our streets. And and each of these uh, these root causes for why people are homeless. And, and I've literally only touched on a, a handful of reasons, um, um, have many, many things that we could do to grapple with it. So for example, you know, everyone knows that there are folks who are chronically homeless. Let's say they have a mental health challenge or they have a drug addiction. That constitutes, say, about 40% of our homeless population. The vast majority of folks on our streets are homeless because they cannot afford a home. And, uh, and this was true before the pandemic. Uh, when we have an economy uh, that is um, creating uh, haves and have-nots, and so many folks, particularly in high-cost cities, um, you have to have two or three minimum wage jobs to afford a two-bedroom apartment. And if you don't have that, you are one paycheck away from homelessness. And so, so much of homelessness right now is a function of the fact that people literally don't have the ability to afford to live in a home. You add the pandemic to this, you add uh, the recession that has stemmed from this pandemic, and all of these issues are are exacerbated. So uh, we could talk for an entire hour about the root causes, but that's just a a, a couple minute snapshot. Sure. And uh, one of the things that I've been working in this area for the last few years, and have a, a foundation that has uh, worked with a number of different groups here in Southern California, in who are helping homeless people across the spectrum, 
And uh, one of their programs was this host homes program where they had people bring homeless people into their homes and, you know, they vetted the homeless person and, and vetted the homeowner. And it is very, it's worked out very well. And I, I thought it would be useful to expand that program statewide. And we're proposing a piece of legislation that uh, would do so. And it would essentially give homeowners uh, approximately $1,000 a month to, to uh, take in a homeless person. And uh, that person would be vetted by a social service agency before they got placed and the homeowner would pass criminal background checks and the like so that it would be a safe uh, place for them to live. And the, the hope is that we could do, we could house a lot of people more uh, effectively than we have been doing in, in recent years because there are millions of empty bedrooms around the state um, uh, and that people could, could take in even a small percentage of our homeless population would make a big dent. And currently, I mean, we're paying to, to create new housing, 550 to $750,000 a unit, which is extremely expensive. I've heard of uh, one project going up to $1.2 million a unit, which seems uh, incredibly uh, infeasible to continue at that uh, rate. So love to get your thoughts on that. I think it's a really interesting idea. I mean, listen, um, we have to move forward on many fronts at the same time to address this housing crisis. And, and what I like about the idea, it, it's out of the box. Uh, it is uh, hopefully uh, figuring out a way to use underutilized rooms in, in, in homes that already exist. Uh, it could give the, if you can imagine, sort of the landlord uh, in this situation, some extra cash during this time period. Uh, give a person the opportunity to get up on his or her feet. Um, so I think that's interesting. Um, I, you know, I know that uh, uh, my guess is there would absolutely be some folks that would want to take advantage of of uh, being able to rent out a spare room in their house or their apartment. Um, but I would also guess that there are a lot of people that um, that may have stereotypes about homeless folks that may not feel comfortable about this. Uh, these sorts of, you know, if, if we're creating a landlord-tenant relationship, uh, the the laws and rules governing that are complicated, and and how you think about that is is important. I would also say that we know there are many folks who are homeless who don't need anything more than a roof to get back up on their feet to be able to work in a job uh, and and move forward. But there are plenty of folks who are homeless who need mental health services, medication. Uh, drug and alcohol treatment uh, and other things, and you need wraparound services with that, and and, and maybe there's a way to do that. But um, I think it's an interesting concept that uh, is deserving of uh, of consideration. Right. Well, I appreciate that, and I, I think one of the ways that we would address that your concern, which I think is a good one, and from all the social service providers that I've worked with, have said that this population does need wraparound services. And I, I think the way that we address that is by having uh, social service agencies uh, be the funnel through which the participants in the program come so that we know that they've already accessed some of those services and that they have a method to, to connect to those services going forward and, and then get that 
whatever services they need so that they continue to um, you know, pull out of whatever condition they've uh, found themselves in. Yeah, that sounds that sounds reasonable to me. I mean, it'd be interesting if there was a pilot somewhere to to see uh, to see how this this goes. Uh, you know, taking a step back, I think um, homelessness is such a multifaceted issue, and and I would maybe a, a couple of ways to think about some of the the solutions. We know that there are. We know that the number of folks who are homeless in our streets are at record levels. One hundred and fifty thousand in the state of California. What we also know is there are a lot of cities, let's say take LA, where um, you know, for every, I think for every hundred plus folks that they're able to house, another hundred plus folks become homeless uh within short periods of time. And and so one of the challenges is how do you prevent people from becoming homeless in the first place? And that has to do with stabilizing people where they live, making sure, particularly during this time of pandemic and recession. That for folks who've lost their jobs, who've, who've seen drops in their income, uh, that we are supplementing their ability to pay the rent so that they're not forced out onto the streets. This is why uh, one of the first bills I introduced in this session was to create a framework to get financial assistance out to tenants and landlords. Uh, this past week, Governor Newsom signed a bill that the legislature passed that was based in part on a conversation that I was moving uh, to get $2.6 billion of federal assistance out to tenants so that they could help pay their landlords so they're not forced out on the street. So part of the solution is to make sure that people aren't becoming homeless in the first place. Part of the solution is to make sure that uh, we have interim solutions, uh, say shelters or navigation centers, when someone is forced out on the streets for those first couple of months or that first six to 12 months um, to just give them shelter and then part of the solution has to be how do we find permanent housing, permanently affordable housing for folks, whether they need services or not. And um, as, as you all know, in, in LA and throughout California, there have been huge challenges trying to site the next shelter, the next navigation center, the next permanent supportive housing. Everyone in the state says we have to address homelessness, but a lot of people in the state say, let's address homelessness, just not in my neighborhood, not in my city. Do it down the freeway. Do it next door. Don't do it right here. And when everyone says that, we aren't able to build the housing or the housing opportunities for people. We've got to figure out how to get beyond that. That absolutely is a, a huge problem. And I think uh, that's one of the reasons I, I came up with this or certainly piggybacking off of others' ideas was that we have empty bedrooms currently in the system or in across the state. And and those could be used. And as uh, I was talking to Senator Wykowski about this uh, a week or two ago on the program, and, and he stated something that was uh, surprising to him and surprising to me when he said it, that 30% of the extremely low-income group in the state uh, have houses. And uh, so this is, as you said before, an opportunity to get some money in their hands. So it's a benefit to them and it'll also obviously be a benefit to the entire state to have that as well. We're gonna to go to a break. Uh, my guest today is Assemblymember David Chu and come back in a minute to Unite and Heal America on KABC 790. Thank you.
Matt Matter, and I'm on the Unite and Heal America show. I've got Assemblymember David Chu with us today, and we're talking about a number of major issues that face California. One of them is the environment, and uh, Secretary, I mean, Assemblymember Chu, you've uh, been on this, um, you know, working on these issues for the last uh, eight years in the Assembly. Uh, what do you think are the most important things the state should be doing uh, in, to address the environmental problems that we have as a state and as a country? Well, I think the first thing we have to remember, in case we anyone has forgotten, is um, while we may have the immediate crisis of the day of the pandemic and the recession and, uh, and very significant conversations around equity and social unrest, um, climate change is continuing. And we literally have less than a decade to turn this around, not just for California and our country, but for the world. And so we have to be just as focused uh, on climate. And, and we're reminded of this every day uh, from, uh, from the wildfires uh, to, if you, you follow just a couple months ago, the orange skies over Northern California, uh, to the impact of smog, to the impact of the environment on, on health. Um, this is something that we have to tackle at the same time we're tackling all the other crises of the day. And this also is a truly multifaceted issue. So, uh, you know, we, we have to be moving on the fronts of, of trying to uh, make sure that our energy sources are clean, to uh, creating a clean transportation system and, uh, and, and moving toward uh, electric vehicles and, and hopefully utilizing public transit more frequently to figure out how to ensure that our buildings are, are decarbonized and uh, are built and maintained in ways uh, that make sense uh, to reducing the amount of waste uh, that we produce uh, and, uh, and addressing that and, 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 and moving on all these fronts. Um, uh, I'm working I, I, every year. It's always important for me to, to move on a, on a couple bills uh, on the environmental front. But, but I think what I'll just say is, you know, as someone who has a four-year-old, I think a lot about how when my son is 14, and he asked me, uh, Papa, what did you do in the legislature to address climate? I don't want to say I didn't do everything I could to, to tackle this. We, we have to do things differently. Uh, we are literally the, uh, uh, the, the proverbial frogs being boiled alive as the temperature of our planet gets ratcheted up a half a degree at a time. And, and we, are, we are hitting a point of no return. Uh, and so we've, we've got to tackle this uh, and we, we've got to understand that our way of life is in jeopardy. Well, absolutely. And uh, I, I remember one of my law school professors used to repeat that California was in the vanguard and uh, in creating law. And, and I think that uh, we've been in the vanguard regarding the environmental movement. And um, I did hear you mention electric cars, but you didn't mention hydrogen cars. I drive a hydrogen car. I think I'm kind of a proponent of that technology. I think that that's even cleaner than than electric, and we should be doing whatever we can to roll that out as quickly as we can. Uh, any- I'll, I'll totally support uh, both. Uh, I, you know, I, I I mentioned electric vehicles because a couple of years ago, uh, Governor Brown signed a law that I had authored to turbocharge putting electric vehicle charging stations throughout the state. And uh, we were trying to grapple with the fact that there are 400 different local jurisdictions that regulate or over-regulate the ability for uh, the electric vehicle industry to place enough charging stations so no one gets range anxiety. 
And at this moment, we do not have enough charging stations uh, to power the future of the number of vehicles that we need or we expect to be on the road. And uh, we've got to do better. But, you know, I'm, I, I love the future of hydrogen. Uh, I actually just had a, a conversation about uh, uh, hydrogen ferries uh, in the Bay Area. Uh, I represent a, a district that uh, is right on the water. And, uh, and I think the future of all these technologies, uh, you know, uh, uh, electric vehicles, hydrogen, wind, solar, these are all things that we've got to move forward all at the same time. And, uh, and it's important for us not to lose focus. What about, uh, you mentioned reducing waste. Uh, what, what do you think uh, the government should be doing and saying regarding reduction of waste? Uh, what should government not be doing? I mean, we produce an incredible amount of waste uh, as Americans uh, every day. Um, and it's not just what we're producing, but it's, it's the waste we're producing that doesn't go back into the ground, is not, say, compostable or isn't recyclable. That's uh, a huge change. So I'll give one example of something I worked on a few years ago. Um, your typical American wastes about 25% of the food that you purchase. So put another way, if you go to the grocery store, you come out with four bags and you decide to leave one in the parking lot, that's what we do every day of every week of every month of the year uh, as Americans. And uh, we've got to do a better job of that. Now, why do we waste so much food? One reason we waste food is um, we have a dizzying array of date labels on food that tell you uh, sell by good until expires on, um, throw out by uh, literally several dozen different labels on foods that tell you when it's supposed to expire. And people get confused. They look at it, they do the sniff test, uh, but they look at a label on there and they're like, do I throw it out? And many folks err on the side of caution. They don't want to get sick and they just throw out the food. And what does that mean? We throw out a quarter of our food. And what does that mean? It means that we waste the, the energy that went into producing that food, transporting that food, throwing out that food, having it sit in landfills. Just that issue alone of confusing date labels that lead to the waste of say 25% of our food, that accounts for literally uh, a ton of carbon dioxide tons that we are wasting. And so, uh, so, so, so I passed a law a couple of years ago uh, working with the food manufacturing industry to streamline the dates on labels so people had a clear sense and, and streamline it really to two things of, of, of a date label that would tell you um, eat by this date or else it will go stale. And then a date label that says, if you don't eat before this date, you're going to get sick if you eat it. That's really all we need. That little change is helping to reduce food waste, but food waste in general has been remarkably harmful to the environment. Well, you're listening to the Unite and Heal America program. I, my guest is Assemblymember David Chu uh, and uh, on KABC 790. Getting back to this issue of food waste, we have worked with a, a group down here in Southern California called Food Finders, and, and they, that's what they do is try to uh, distribute and redistribute food that normally was going to waste. And it is a shockingly large amount of food. And, and they've done a great job of getting it to lower income people. And, uh, but we've, we've got to do more. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I, I turn you back to the compostable, recyclable issue. I mean, is it time for the state of California to require that 
all of the containers that uh, are are sold meet that standard? And by when would it be feasible to do that? I absolutely think we should do that. It's something that we do in my city. And and I will say when the uh, when the rules first came down that you had to separate your trash into uh, recyclables, uh, compostables, and everything else, three different containers, people like, oh, that's confusing. It's hard. You figure it out within a matter of days. And now it is it's uh, it, it's it's uh, it's automatic. Uh, my my four year old son uh, loves to help figuring out what the compostable versus the recyclable uh, waste stream is, and and we we've got to do it. Uh, we don't have a choice. What about where is that all going? Because I've read that uh, China has stopped accepting our res- uh, a lot of our recyclable plastic, uh, and we've got a bit of a crisis there. What are we going to do if? We don't have a place to uh, to send this stuff. There really is a crisis. Uh, so China did shut down a lot of their major markets in this area. And, and what it means is we have to be even more careful about our waste streams. And uh, one of the things that is happening right now is a lot of plastics are being sent into the recyclable stream that aren't recyclable uh, or things are being put into the compost stream, which aren't compostable. And uh, because of the challenges in the market, uh, you have uh, waste management companies that are spending incredible, inordinate resources separating out and cleaning up those waste streams. We've just got to do a better job of, of, of figuring that out. Well, certainly everybody has a part in that process, and uh, we all need to dig deeper in, in, on all of those fronts. I wanted to uh, turn your attention to the EDD debacle that occurred uh, in recently, with lots of checks being mailed out to prisoners and, and uh, crime syndicates around the country, around the world. And how did that happen? And how do we clean that up so it doesn't happen again? So I never expected to be as engaged on this issue as uh, I have been in the last uh, uh, now going on seven, eight months. Um, but what happened started really with the Great Recession. Uh, 10 plus years ago, the EDD unemployment benefit system crashed. And uh, policymakers discovered in that 2010 plus timeframe uh, that uh, the IT system was uh, completely antiquated. Uh, you had all these bureaucratic procedures that didn't make any sense. Uh, EDD leadership wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. And uh, 10 years ago, they vowed they were going to clean up the system. Well, what happened? They took $260 million, nothing actually happened. Here we are again, but now we're in this pandemic, which has created the quickest unemployment crisis we've ever seen. And so it has been an utter mess. Uh, EDD has failed, its leadership has failed. Uh, Many of us uh, have been moving a variety of different reform proposals to address this. And uh, uh, we've got to turn the ship around. Well, you've been listening to Unite and Heal America with Assembly Member David Chu. Back in a minute. Well, you're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Matter, and I've got my guest, uh, Assembly Member David Chu, and we've been talking about the EDD debacle. And and uh, Assembly Member Chu, you stated that there should be some accountability for uh, that that debacle and uh, what what accountability are we seeing? Because I think uh, people around the state are very concerned that 
we spent hundreds of millions of dollars updating a system and it didn't work. Well, not only that, uh, we discovered uh, that there have been sophisticated criminal syndicates that have engaged in billions of dollars, potentially tens of billions of dollars of fraud, uh, rather than having those benefits go to hardworking, honest Californians who are desperately trying to figure out how to pay for the rent or, or put food on the table. Um, you know, as far as who should be held accountable, I've been saying for many months that the, the, the lion's share of the fault lies with EDD leadership that for many years ignored or failed to address this. And, and frankly, during many months uh, at the beginning of this pandemic, failed to see the, the red lights that were blinking on, on all these challenges. We uh, just all learned from a couple of audits this past week uh, that EDD uh, was not focused on the, the immense and likely historic levels of fraud uh, that, that we have seen and it has cost us and it has also meant that everyday Californians are 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 not getting the benefits uh, that they that they deserve because on the one hand the system didn't guard against criminal fraud on the other hand it's failed miserably at uh, at, at being the social safety net that we needed to be now the leadership of EDD that had been responsible in recent years uh, well at this moment uh, has effectively turned over uh, the EDD director that had been in place for the better part of last year resigned at the end of last year. We now have a new EDD director. Her top uh, management team has effectively turned over. So um, we're hopeful that with this new leadership, they'll be able to turn things around. But we need everything from a modernization and a rehaul of information technology to changing up bureaucratic procedures to putting real anti-fraud measures in place to holding everybody accountable um, to, uh, to, to making sure this is a system that is accessible to all. I mentioned one dimension of this. 40% of California speaks a language other than English. And yet a recent report of EDD found that if English is not your first language, the challenges of accessing the system are, quote, insurmountable. You cannot access the system uh, if, uh, if English is not your first language, particularly if, 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 if not English, if not Spanish, you're, you're pretty screwed. So, uh, so I, I'm moving forward with legislation to really push that conversation so we're not shutting out literally 7 million Californians uh, who primarily speak a language other than, than English. Well, that uh, is important work. And, and I uh, would certainly ask you as a, as a leader in our state government to, to hold these members of EDD accountable and, and uh, provide the oversight necessary to make sure that the systems are changed because uh, you know, we in California pay a lot of taxes. We certainly want them to be used for the benefit of our state versus the benefit of a bunch of criminals. Amen. Uh, it has been infuriating. You know, 35,000 prison inmates had their names used for EDD benefits. Uh, we had over 100 folks on death row uh, who had benefits attached to their names. It is, I, at one point a couple months ago, I said it's literally criminal and got a lot of flack for suggesting that this is criminal. Well, it actually turns out in this instance, a lot of this fraud is being driven by sophisticated crime syndicates. Well, um, turning to a different topic, which is the related topic of homelessness and the criminal justice system. And um, I had done some uh, work with an organization that that uh, took inmates who had, who had served long prison terms and helped uh, mainstream them back into society 
which is a, a difficult task when somebody has been out of the workforce for a dozen plus years and had, you know just doesn't uh, know any of the technology that's up that has come around in the last uh, ten plus years and and they're just uh, they're struggling to survive kind of in this new environment. And I thought they did some great work. What, what types of reforms are you talking about instituting to help uh, people in that situation? You know, I'd love to know more about that particular program. Uh, I've just introduced a bill to really break down the barriers between our criminal justice system and our housing system. Um, you know, listen, it, it's not a surprise uh, that uh, we see the cycle of homelessness and incarceration play out on our streets every day. People who experience homelessness are more likely to be incarcerated, and people who have been incarcerated are more likely to experience homelessness. And just to give one statistic, uh, it's estimated about half of all folks who are homeless have had some interaction with the criminal justice system. Uh, and, and, and here's what we are trying to, to, to grapple with. To your point, when someone has spent years uh, in a prison uh, and cut off from society, we expect them to, to get their civilian clothes back. We give you back your watch, your wallet. You walk out on the street and we expect you immediately to be able to get a job and pay for rent. And that's just not reasonable. Uh, we've got to figure out how to help people transition back into society. And so I have proposed the following. We're in the process as a state of closing down a number of very expensive prisons. It costs anywhere from 84 to, in some instances, say $100,000 to house someone in a prison. And we're shutting those prisons down. And that is a good thing. But at the same time, we're not investing to put a roof over someone's head to help them at least for six or 12 months transition back into our society. And so what I propose is that we use some of the savings from closing prisons on housing for formerly incarcerated people in order to reduce recidivism, be able to prevent people from having to cycle back into the system and saving the state money. Because we know when people exit our prisons, they need a stable home. And we also know that people can't get a job, a meaningful employment without stable housing. And we also know um, that, uh, that part of what is exacerbating the racial divide we're seeing uh, on our streets is the fact that um, when we have a criminal justice system that has imprisoned a, a disproportionate uh, percentage of, of folks who are black and brown, and we're kicking them out onto the streets, and we're not giving them a home, that is that is ensuring that our homeless population uh, is uh, is seeing a concentration of folks from our African American community, from our Latinx community, a huge number of people exiting prison without a place to live, and, and we need to do better. And so I I just think. Uh, if we're going to make sure that when folks leave the prison system, that they don't end up right back in the system. And right now, the stats are people on parole are seven times more likely to recidivate when they're homeless versus when they're housed. Um, the way we turn that around is to, to really think about how do, we, how do we help house these folks? How do we help provide them services so that we can get them up on their feet in the short run? And, and hopefully, They'll get a job, be able to afford their own home, and uh, and and we keep them out of the prison system and and off the streets from adding to our homeless numbers. Well, you've been listening to Unite and Heal America with uh, Assemblymember David Chu. Uh, we're talking about a number of issues that are uh, facing the state on KBC 790.
one one thing you said, Assembly Member Two, is the the uh, the cost related to this, and when you consider uh, the rate of recidivism, as you just sta stated, for somebody who is um, you know homeless, uh, that alone tells us that it it makes sense from a from an economic standpoint to find a solution to this because we're ending up having to pay. Uh, if that person goes back to prison, eighty to one hundred thousand dollars a year to house that person in a prison, which is obviously far more expensive and has a, a lot of other societal costs related to it as well, because uh, we obviously know that isn't something that doesn't cause long-term damage to that person and just the whole community to house more and more people in prisons. That isn't uh, going to be a solution. So. Uh, Yes, uh, this organization that I had worked with in, in downtown LA and it, uh, Amistad was, is one of the pieces of that organization. And they had a, a fairly big kind of like old warehousey type building and uh, maybe former apartment building and had a, had a great program that, that helped people get back on their feet. And, and it was really had those wraparound services that we had talked about earlier, which help people get jobs, find find a path forward versus uh, right back out on the street and then being, you know, dragged back into a life of crime. So um, that's, I, I think that's something that we should be looking at further and, and funding programs like that so that this doesn't happen. Absolutely. I mean, you know, listen, again, if it costs 80, thousand to a hundred thousand dollars to house someone at uh at a at a prison and it costs us fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a year to provide full wraparound services the mental health services the drug addiction treatment services the 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 job training services to help someone get up on their feet that's a that's an easy easy decision for society and it just makes a lot of sense and and at the same time we're saying we've got to end homelessness in our streets uh, we, we, we really have to focus on, on this population. Well, uh, you're listening to Unite and Heal America. Assembly member David Chu is my guest. We're going to take a break and we'll be back in a minute. Well, we're back uh, with the Unite and Heal America show. I've got uh, Assembly member David Chu on the show and it's been uh, Great pleasure talking with you. One of the things we had been talking about various points in the show was uh, wraparound services. And, and uh, I think it's useful for the listeners to hear a little bit more about that. My understanding of what that means is counseling. It might be job counseling. It might be drug and alcohol counseling. It might be um, employment uh, help and uh, things of that nature. If you want to expand upon that, uh, Assembly Member Chu, uh, that would be great to give our listeners a little bit better sense of, of the types of services that should be made available in these circumstances. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, as, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, there are many reasons why folks are homeless, and over a half of all folks who are homeless are literally homeless because at some point they didn't have enough money for the rent, and uh, they got evicted. They couldn't afford to live somewhere. They're out on the streets, but they're otherwise employable. Uh, they don't have any challenges other than that. And they don't need services. 
But in many instances, again, about 40% of, of our chronically homeless population, um, you have folks who have been grappling with really challenging personal situations. So uh, whether it's the voice in their head and they have a, a mental health challenge that they're grappling with, whether they got addicted to painkillers or alcohol at some point and they need uh, alcohol and drug treatment programs, um, they may have an anger management issue. Uh, oftentimes uh, you have someone who is uh, in a, a, a perpetrator in a domestic violence situation who, who really needs anger management counseling and psychological counseling to, to be able to, to, to relate to other folks in a way that's not threatening. Um, so what uh, supportive housing is, is it's, it's literally housing that has attached to it caseworkers, social workers, others who can meet the needs of whoever's living in the housing and meet them where they are and, and address uh, the, the, the challenges that are, are facing them. What they have found is, is supportive housing is remarkably cost-efficient. It's not just the more humane thing to do to help someone get back on their feet, but it's actually for society uh, a very cost-efficient way of, of helping people uh, end up not reoffending, not becoming um, uh, uh, not becoming back addicted to the, the challenges they were facing before. Um, it is the best way for us to address a lot of these chronic issues. Well, I wanted to uh, pivot to another topic, uh, the eviction moratorium that you've been involved in and, and what's the status of that and, and how is that going to play out? And, and in particular, uh, related to the California budget and how much it's going to cost and, and uh, what's the long-term effect on that for our, our budget? So um, I've spent the better part of this past year really grappling with how we're trying to address what had been a couple of eviction cliffs that we were facing. And so let me explain what I mean by that. So we have millions of Californians that are hanging by a thread because they've been laid off or because their income has dropped dramatically. Uh, you know, just last month, there were 2 million Californians who told uh, census survey workers that they had little or no confidence in their ability to pay next month's rent. And the, the, the challenge of this is not just on those struggling tenants, but also in many instances, they're struggling landlords because they owe a check to someone. And there are many landlords that are doing just fine, but there are plenty of landlords. They've got to pay the mortgage. They got to pay the taxes. They got to pay the fees. And so there is this whole ecosystem that is, has been in great risk. Um, when the pandemic started, the court system had halted evictions. So basically between uh, March and the end of August, uh, the California Supreme Court said no evictions for that seven, six, seven month time period. But then they said that it was up to the legislature and the governor to decide what to do after August. And so I helped to craft uh, what was a compromise between the landlords and tenants of basically a five month initial eviction moratorium, whereby as long as a tenant paid 25% of their rent, they couldn't be evicted before January 31st. Um, the rent would come due, was going to come due on February 1st, but, uh, but the tenant wouldn't be evicted. And this allowed us to avoid pushing millions of Californians out onto the streets and exacerbating the homeless situation we were just talking about, as well as uh, we were trying to avoid pushing people into dense, overcrowded situations, terrible for COVID-19 during this time period. Now, uh, what happened was January 31st has come and gone. And we were facing until 
we passed a bill just a few days ago. Uh, if we had not extended the eviction moratorium, we were potentially going to follow other states that also did not extend their eviction moratorium. UCLA did a recent study in states that did not choose to put these protections in place and extend the protections. They saw an additional 433,000 COVID cases, 11, close to 11,000 COVID deaths. And we obviously didn't want that to happen in California. So um, the very first bills that I introduced in, uh, in this session were to both extend the eviction moratorium as well as to create a framework of money to go to struggling tenants and landlords. And fortunately, Washington, D.C. actually came through. A couple weeks ago, Congress passed an economic stimulus package that included $2.6 billion to California. And just last week, the governor and, uh, and our, our, our um, legislative leadership agreed on how to disperse the funding in the following way. Basically, the funding will be accessible by low-income tenants and their landlords. And by low-income, I mean anyone who's making less than 80% of the area median income. So it's, it's working families uh, and lower-income folks. And uh, what we are offering to landlord and tenants is the following. If a landlord agrees to forgive 20% of the rental debt owed by a tenant, government will step in and pay for the remaining 80% of the rent that has been unpaid. I think it's a very good deal. Now, if a landlord chooses not to forgive that 20%, we will still provide the tenant with the 25% of rental assistance they need so they don't get evicted during this time period. So it's basically a choice that we provide uh, to, to figure out how folks can get through this time period. And, um, and it's our hope uh, that with this, we'll be able to get people from this time, from early February all the way to the end of June. And then we'll have to revisit at the end of June how we address this. But this way, we are preventing potentially millions of folks from being evicted. We're helping to stabilize the situation of both struggling tenants and landlords uh, during a time period when this deadliest moment in the pandemic, we can't have folks forced out onto the streets. Well, that's certainly true. Now, you've been uh, listening to Unite and Heal America. My guest is Assemblymember David Chu, KABC 790. One of the things that uh, you had stated was that uh, $2.6 billion was provided by the federal government. Is that going to cover 100% of the cost of this program or uh, some portion of it going to have to come out of state government funds? So that is literally the $2.6 billion question. The real answer is no one knows exactly what the full rental debt that's owed at this moment to landlords by struggling tenants. There have been many estimates, uh, and they've ranged dramatically from $400 million to $4 billion. We just don't know if this is going to be enough money. And so part of why we structured the program the way we did to ask landlords to forgive 20% of the debt is to make these dollars stretch. Part of the reason why uh, this money is only eligible for folks who make less than 80% of the area median income is to stretch the money. So we are hopeful that uh, we're going to be able to pay most of the back rent and, uh, and some of the rent moving forward between now and June. We will have a much better sense in the next month or two once applications come in. The We've prioritized how the monies will be uh, dispersed. And the first priority is for folks who make less than 50% of the area median income, as well as folks in uh, the hardest hit 
neighborhoods when it comes to the pandemic. And we'll have a much better sense as we monitor this month by month and see how many people apply for the money, um, how far we can make it stretch. I want to ask you a bit about the pandemic since uh, you're here and what the state is going to be doing to roll out the vaccine more effectively than it has been and how are we addressing this healthcare crisis from the state level? Well, I think it's it's no secret that um, rolling out the vaccine has been incredibly challenging. And, you know, I, I, <laughs> I'd be remiss to say that if we had had federal leadership under President Trump that had since the beginning of the recession, uh, the, the, the pandemic, uh, thought carefully about how the federal government could coordinate the smooth and easy transition of vaccine distribution, I don't think we'd be where we are right now. But that being said, um, we're grappling with this as as we speak. And um, initially, we had tried to be, government had tried to be incredibly deliberate in who receives the vaccine so that we provided the vaccine to individuals who were most at risk of, of, of contracting COVID-19. Those frontline workers, those seniors and others in very, uh, uh, in, in, in the most vulnerable environments. Um, as we did that, there were all sorts of complications. And so recently the governor decided uh, based on conversations with his health experts uh, to change it up and simplify it and basically focus vaccination distribution on, on our seniors. Um, and so that at some levels makes distribution easier uh, as we focus on people just based on age, but it also means that there are a lot of frontline workers who I would like to see get the vaccine who may have to wait for folks who are over 75 or over 65 to get it. And so these are these are the trade-offs that you have to make during the uh, during this unprecedented health crisis. You know, it's been 100 years since the 1918 flu that we've had to deal with something of this magnitude. And, uh, and clearly we didn't have the systems to, to, to deal with it. But that being said, there are a lot of good people thinking really hard about this, and I think the vaccine distribution is uh, is improving. Um, knock on wood. Well, it, it certainly has been a bit confusing for those of us following it as to who is going to get it and where, where and when and how. And uh, the goalposts seem to be changing a bit from day to day and week to week. And I, I certainly hope it gets rolled out as quickly as possible. And I agree with you. It seems like the frontline workers in the healthcare system should be uh, some of the first ones to get the vaccine so that they're safe while delivering the healthcare to the rest of us. So um, that's, uh, that's uh, where we're going to have to end it for this week, but it's been a pleasure having you on the show and would love to have you back sometime. Had the pleasure of having assembly member David Chu on our show You've been listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern on KBC 790. Look forward to having you all back next Saturday. This pre recorded show furnished by Matthew Mattern.